Hi there. This is James Holman, host of the Daily 202's Big Idea. We do a monthly interview series here at the Washington Post's headquarters with prominent newsmakers to talk about big issues. This month's guest was Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, who has a close personal relationship with President Trump. In fact, the billionaire president has called his billionaire business friend one of the best deal makers he's ever met. Now Ross is the point man on trying to make some of the biggest trade deals that we have. That, of course, was a central promise of Trump's campaign. Secretary Ross and I spoke for more than half an hour on Friday about a range of topics. I thought you might be most interested, though, in the chunk of our conversation about trade, specifically the future of NAFTA, as well as the complicated interplay in Asia between national security and economic diplomacy. This conversation has been edited for length and clarity. Let's switch gears to trade. I want to start with NAFTA, uh, just because that's closest to home. After the second round of talks wrapped up, it seemed that there were still a lot of unresolved issues, such as expanding the use of U.S.-made materials and automobiles. Do you feel like the Mexicans and the Canadians are negotiating in good faith? What are the biggest holdups at this point to kind of reconfiguring this? Well, you have to put it in perspective. There have only been two sessions so far, the one original one in Washington and then the one in Mexico City that just concluded. Mm -hmm. The next one will be in Ottawa in, I think, two weeks or so. In any big, complicated negotiation, and this is a complicated one, you've got something like 2,500 pages to deal with. Now, of those 2,500 pages, there are only a handful that are really key, but you've got to wind through all of them. So the strategy in the negotiations was start with some of the easier things, get some of the textual issues out of the way, try to build some momentum so that you really had some momentum, a feeling of togetherness Mm -hmm. as you move into the harder issues. And so obviously I get the point about how it's still early. Do you feel like the other two countries are negotiating in good faith? It's too early to really tell. This is a total of 10 days is all uh, of negotiation. That's not a lot. It took them, what, eight years to do Uh, an average trade treaty, so we're trying to get done more or less by the end of the year, a whole revamp. So this is an unprecedented thing. Totally. And so is the pace. Having five consecutive days of negotiation and then only recessing for a couple of weeks between, that's unheard of. Right. That's that's a record-breaking pace. Now, that may sound strange to you because it doesn't strike me as a private sector guy, as very rapid. But relative to the way things have been done before, it is extremely rapid. Does your gut tell you we'll be able to get something done by the end of the year? Obviously, these things can end up dragging on. And Well, it can't drag on too long because of the political calendar. You have the Mexican presidential elections in midsummer next year. You have Canadian provincial elections around the same time. Our fast-track authority, the Trade Promotion Authority expires in July of next year. And then obviously in November next year, we have the midterm elections. Mm -hmm. So as you get closer to all of those political dates, the ability to get anything done will go down. So there's no fine line magic date, but more or less around the end of the year is probably where we're going to need to know where we are. Yeah. I mean, do you see it as a possibility that NAFTA could kind of fall apart if these negotiations don't work? Something well, that's on the, the president has made clear if they don't work, he's going to pull out. Yeah. So that shouldn't be a shock to anyone. 
Um, and really, that's the right thing. Uh, we need fixes to this trend, this deal. It has not worked the way that it was intended to. And not to pick particularly on Mexico, but as an illustration, pre-NAFTA, we routinely had four to five billion dollars a year of trade surplus with Mexico. Now, what do you think the cumulative trade deficit with Mexico has been since NAFTA? Not that. <laughs> One trillion dollars. Wow. Now, even by Washington standards, one trillion dollars, I can barely pronounce it, one trillion dollars is a big number. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's just Mexico's fault, that's not the point, but it's a stark contrast to have gone, a trade agreement was supposed to benefit both sides. Right. It was also supposed to raise the standard of living in Mexico. And until recently, they haven't had a single increase in their minimum wage in years and years and years and years. And even now, it's, what, a dollar or two a day. It's not very good. So the prosperity has not been very well distributed uh, down there. Do you feel like NAFTA has been a net plus for the U.S.? Obviously, a trillion dollars is a lot of money, even by Washington standards. But has, have we benefited from it net-net? Well, you can argue that anything that makes for more trade is useful. But I don't think that's the point. The point is, is it an appropriate agreement did it fairly distribute the benefits? And we don't think that it did. Yeah. Let's switch gears to Asia. You tried to negotiate a deal with China on steel exports. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some press reports that you presented the president with a proposed deal this summer under which the Chinese would agree to short-term goals for reducing their steel production capacity. That didn't happen. And now there's talk about leaning more toward imposing tariffs on Chinese steel exports. Are new tariffs coming soon? Where, where do you see this going? It's very complicated because you have the the singular problem of Chinese being about 90% of the trade with North Korea. Right. So in order to make sanctions really effective, you can't have them being as generous as they have been in terms of trade. So that's one direction of, of trade policy. Mm -hmm. Then the other one is our deficit with China which, depending how you measure it, is more or less a half a trillion dollars a year. And what is interesting, China, if you took U.S. out of the equation, China has a net trading deficit with the rest of the world. Their trade surplus with us makes up for that deficit and then leaves them with a net surplus. Hmm. So in effect, we're absorbing an awful lot of cumulative problems from elsewhere. Right. That seems a bit of a heavy burden. Yeah. Uh, and we're working very hard to try to fix that. Sticking in that part of the world, but changing gears, Afghanistan, you delivered a plan this summer to the president to get the Afghanistan economy back on its feet that relies in part on tapping into the country's estimated trillion dollars in mineral resources, trillion even by Washington standards, right. as you said, a lot of money. Where does the plan stand? And, and are we going to be able to benefit from that? Well, to give you the background, a few years ago, the U.S. Geological Survey did a survey of Afghanistan. And they, it was not done on ground level with a lot of borings. It was done mostly from the air. But uh, it concluded that there was about a trillion dollars of natural resources, not counting oil and gas, so copper, lithium, 
minerals of those sort, that's a big number. And given that Afghanistan is such a small economy, just developing any small portion of that would be transformative uh, for the economy. So we need to refine our thinking what really is available there, and especially what might be available there in open pit mining, because that's the easiest kind. It's one that would use a lot of indigenous labor, and uh, it's the, a harder thing for the uh, Taliban or ISIS to interfere with, right. as opposed to a deep underground mine. So uh, the next phase would be learning more about what's actually there, where is it, how recoverable is it, and then ultimately getting some big international mining firms to come in and do the job. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap up soon, but I wanted to kind of end on a bigger picture note. What's the adjustment been like into government? You've talked about it in a couple different places. What's been the most surprising thing about being a cabinet secretary versus being a CEO? Well, there have been a couple surprising things. The first is I had to adjust to having a boss again, and I haven't had one in quite a long time, so that was an adjustment yeah. process. But the the most heartening thing about it is Washington as a place is a very habitable community. I'd spent time here before but never lived here, and it's a wonderful place to live. So that was that exceeded my expectations by quite a bit. The other thing that exceeded them by quite a bit was the quality of people in the mid-ranks in the government. There are a lot of very, very dedicated people, very skilled people, very knowledgeable people, in some cases, they've been kind of trapped in a dysfunctional system. But if you can liberate them, they can really do good things, and they want to do good things. And that was something that exceeded very much my expectations. I had no idea what it would be like. We have 47,000 employees in, in our group uh, at, Sense, at uh, Commerce. And it's very disparate things. We're kind of a big conglomerate because it goes from things like the Weather Service, NOAA, space launching of satellites, managing the fisheries, uh, the ocean fisheries all around the, the country. It covers a whole range of different activities, and then the whole trade and trade enforcement mm -hmm. activities. So it's, it's a very complicated department from that point of view. Do you think you'll stay the whole term, all four years? What's your thinking there? Four years? President's counting on eight, eight years. years. <laughs> <laughs> you like it. You like Washington. <laughs> I do. It's a, I do. To watch my full interview with Secretary Ross, go to WashingtonPost.com slash post live. Thanks for listening to this special installment of the Daily 202's Big Idea. I hope you have a good weekend. I'm James Holman, and I'll talk to you on Monday morning.